Gracious God, we do thank you for that blessed fountain of Christ's blood which washes even sinners like us. We thank you for the confidence we have in that cleansing blood. And we stand here tonight, Father, filled with praise and gratitude. We pray now that you'd be pleased to open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, Father, to hear your word as you speak to us through the Bible. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Well, we're taking a little break from Revelation uh, because of two things. Well, several things. Um, I'm going away on vacation in a couple of weeks. That's one reason. And uh, we have a guest preacher, Warren Dodson, who's going to be here speaking from from Genesis. And the interesting thing is I think you'll see a great deal of... um, continuity and connection between the uh, the first book in the Bible, which Warren's going to look at, and the last book in the Bible, which we've been looking at for the past several weeks, and we will look at again in September. So we're taking a break for just for summer plans, but there are two other very specific reasons why uh, I wanted to take a break and deal with the book of Acts. Uh, it's interesting, the last several weeks, a number of newcomers have been asking me questions about what Trinity is and why we do what we do. And interestingly, some long-time members have been saying the same thing. Uh, I think it's partly because they're being asked by newcomers, what does Trinity mean, why do we do what we do? And so um, it seemed like a good idea to take a little break and drop back and think about what Trinity is and what we're going to do here at Trinity After Dark and what we aim to do at all of our services at Trinity and uh, give you an explanation about what kind of church we are. Uh, so that's, that's one reason. The second reason is uh, you may have read or heard about the uh, recent statement by the Vatican, a, a statement called Dominus Jesus. That's the Latin for uh, the Lord Jesus. Those are the first three words of a statement from uh, the Vatican, and it was uh, presented in a uh, new form in um, early July. And my goodness, it met with a huge response if you follow these kinds of things. Anybody hear about it? I know some of you guys did. Had you heard about it at all? Not at all? Have you heard about it? Well, it's, it's a very interesting statement. And the headlines have been amazing. Uh, in the New York Times, uh, the uh, implication was that the Pope had said that uh, all other churches were non-churches. Uh, the BBC, the uh, Yahoo Online News Service, those were a couple of inflammatory headlines I found about uh, what the Pope and the Vatican had done. Uh, There was a headline in the Times of London that said, if it isn't Roman Catholic, then it's not a proper church, Pope tells Christians. That's from the Times of London, uh, July 11th. And there's a picture of the Pope. It's not a very good picture. It's kind of a frightening picture of uh, our brother Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger. Um, one of the most colorful uh, descriptions I heard was in one of those online blogs, a, um, a, a Baptist who was raised Roman Catholic uh, but had become a Baptist wrote in, in this online blog that the uh, Dominus Jesus statement was nothing but, I think this is an exact quote, the rantings of an angry old man, unquote. And... Uh, I thought, you know, it might be worthwhile, 
to take a little break from Revelation and to deal with these questions about who we are as a church in light of some of the things being said. Now, what, I've actually got a copy of this statement. It's 16 pages long. There are over 100 footnotes. So it's not for everybody, but anybody wants to read it. I gave out one copy this morning. I'd be happy to give out another copy or two or three tonight. Um, i got to tell you, having read Dominus Jesus, uh, I do not find it to be uh, ranting. I don't find it to be angry. Uh, in fact, what I find here is, is a great deal to be excited about for us as Christians. I think it's helpful when we are honest about what we believe. That's really the ground for any meaningful discussion. If we aren't clear what, about what we believe, or if we're uh, secretive about it, then we're, we're not actually able to have a meaningful dialogue. So, I honestly believe with Christianity today that this is a helpful thing for discussions between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, it's multi-section, and having read it, I, uh, I highlighted in light gray the parts that I agreed with strongly, personally. Hey, brother. And i got to tell you, I, I strongly agreed with a great deal of it. I would say probably the majority of this statement is Orthodox Biblical Christianity. Uh, it's about the Lord Jesus. Those are the first three words of the, uh, of the statement in English. And it really is a statement that basically deals with who Jesus is. So there are sections in this paper about the fullness and the definitiveness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. I wish I had had that when I was going through my liberal Episcopal seminary in Virginia because he just deals in such a non-defensive way and yet in such an orthodox way with these uh, heterodox, anti-biblical understandings about who Christ is. Well, section one of this paper deals very directly and I think very helpfully over that subject. Section two has to do with the incarnate logos and the Holy Spirit and the work of salvation. Again, all light gray headlines for me. I personally found this to be extremely helpful in understanding the work of the Holy Spirit in a short paper. Uh, Section 3 of the um, statement deals with the universality of the salvific mystery of Jesus, which has to do with the the once-for-allness, the uniqueness of the salvation that is available in Christ, that He is the only Savior, very much in line with what we're going to look at in Acts tonight. Uh, I'll come back to section 4. Section 4 I I want to discuss with you all uh, in more detail tonight. Section 5 and 6 and I think 7. No, 5 and 6 deal with the um, relationship between the church and the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and uh, the, the similarity, the overlapness, and yet the distinctiveness of each parts, uh, each of those expressions as used in the scriptures. And uh, while I'm not fully sure if I share it completely, there's nothing unorthodox about it, and it may be a helpful way of understanding the distinction as used in the scripture between those different phrases, which are sometimes lumped together unhelpfully, and I've, I've certainly heard that done. So, as I say, uh, out, of, out of six sections, four or five of them I personally strongly uh, affirm and would be perfectly happy for those to be the statements of, of Trinity and uh, our own denomination, the, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Communion. They sum up 
what the Bible says about Christ. It's section 4, however, where all the headlines have come from and where I think we do need to look if we're going to uh, understand properly what the church is. Because it's in this section, section 4, where the uh, Roman Catholic Church deals very honestly and very directly with what is a church. I just want to read to you a few quotes just so you'll know what all the hubbub is about. If you've been curious, uh, even based on simply what I'm saying, here, here it is what uh, that they say. This is from section uh, five, 4. Yeah, section 4. The Catholic faithful are required to profess that there, that there is an historical continuity rooted in the apostolic succession. We'll talk about that in a minute between the church founded by Christ and the Catholic Church. This is the single church of Christ, which our Savior, after His resurrection, entrusted to Peter's pastoral care, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule her, erected for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth. This church, constituted and organized as a society in the present world, subsists in, and that's an important phrase, and it's nuanced, okay? They're actually using a Latin word, subsistit in, subsistit in. Um, it subsists in the Catholic Church, governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. In other words, as the headline from the Times of London says, if it isn't Roman Catholic, then it's not a proper church. A little further along in the same article, this is what it says. It, it, it has a bracketed description of the Orthodox churches. It says that they are in, in closest fellowship. And while there's, there's uh, some imperfection in their communion with the church, they are, uh, a, they are a proper church. But then this is what he says, or they say, in the next paragraph. Uh, the ecclesial communities, that's you and me by the way, which have not preserved the valid episcopate and the genuine and integral substance of the Eucharistic mystery are not churches in the proper sense. Now he goes on to say that that doesn't mean we can't be saved. Uh, It's very, very clear on that point. But he makes it plain here that what you and I are doing here tonight is not church. Uh, We are an ecclesial community. And because of two... Uh, deficiencies as they perceive them, we are not actually a, a proper church. Well, I want to I tackle that head on, and I want to explain to you why we are a proper church and what kind of proper church we are here at Trinity. And I think as we go along through this, uh, you'll see some of our distinctives and also why we do what we do. So that's, that's our goal for tonight. Uh, I've, for the very first time, given my sermon a Latin title. And it took my uh, Latin consultant, William, uh, and his Latin professor uh, about an hour to make sure I got this exactly right. Because I wanted to make sure that, that uh, no wiseacre was able to go home and find out Latin grammar that I'd gotten wrong. All right? so, and you know who I'm talking about. Uh, so I wanted to make sure my Latin was correct. So here's my once-for-all Latin title for a sermon, all right? Actually, two. I've got another one next week, okay? So you get two Latin titles. This week, the title of the sermon is Dominus Noster Quoque. And uh, the translation's given. It means Our Lord Also. Our Lord Too. Dominus Lord Noster Our 
quoque also or to. It, he is our Lord too. And I want to make the point as we go through here uh, that that means we are in fact church. Now, we're going to do this tonight by looking at Acts chapter 2. Let me get you to open the Bible to Acts 2. William read it for us beautifully, but it would be very helpful to have it open in front of you. We're going to focus in primarily on one verse towards the end, uh, verse 42. And this is describing the apostolic church, the the earliest uh, gathering of of the community of, of God's people after the Pentecost appearance. This is that verse which describes what the church did and does. They, that is the group of disciples who responded to this Pentecost vision, this Pentecost experience, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Three things I want to focus on with you tonight. And uh, they are apostolic teaching, didache, Fellowship, the Greek word is koinonia, and prayer, the Greek word is prosuke. Uh, you may have noticed the breaking of bread there, it doesn't have an and in front of it, but a comma. That's because in Greek it isn't actually a separate clause, it flows from fellowship. There's a sense in which fellowship is expressed in breaking bread together. They're not two separate things, they're two aspects of the same thing. So there are three ands in this verse, that's true in Greek and in English. Uh, apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and prayer. So we're going to look at each of those three things and see what it has to do with the church. And I want to maintain with you all tonight, in respectful response to our brother uh, Joseph Benedict, uh, that we are part of the church. And because these are our goals and these are our heart and our, our passion, this is what it means to be in the church of Jesus Christ. If He is our Lord too. So first of all, uh, apostolic teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, the fellowship of the church is a community built around a corpus, a body of teaching. Uh, it is teaching that is recorded for us today in the Bible, Old and New Testaments. Of course, when Acts was written, it was, in, it was contained in the Old Testament and in the uh, application and, and teaching of what Jesus said, and that was through the apostles. So at the time of this writing, it was preserved in the Old Testament, which is the undisputed Word of God as they understood it, along with the apostolic teaching of, um, of the, all the apostles who had walked with Christ. And of course, this is what we see in the first two-thirds of the book of Acts chapter, one, chapter 2. We see apostolic teaching. So in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, on this first day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and fills them with the Spirit, and there are fire, there's fire on them, like tons of fire, it says. The Holy Spirit filled them, filled the house where they were sitting. And uh, the first thing that happens after this amazing manifestation of the Spirit, and after the whole crowd has seen the, the people talking about Jesus, the, the apostles talking about Jesus, in their own language, yet being understood in every language, the first thing that happens down in verse 14 is Peter stands up with the eleven. He raised his voice because there was no sound system. And he preached. He addressed the crowd. 
Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. See, what Peter did is what the church has always done. We have sought to explain and apply the Word of God. That's actually what Peter does here. He's going to quote at some length from the prophet Joel and from the Psalms. Uh, He's going to, to, to quote those passages and then explain them. Inspired by the Spirit, he explains them. Now, of course, his explanation is recorded for us because it's uniquely inspired. That, that was the special uh, job entrusted to the apostles. They were especially equipped for it. And so what they say about the, uh, the teaching of the Old Testament is now written down for us because that has become authoritative. And what I'm trying to do, you decide how well we do it, but I, what I'm trying to do is to bring this same word to you and to teach it and hopefully with you all to apply it in our life as individuals and as a community. That's what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. It means, as Peter did, to bring the Word of God into our very midst and to consciously yield ourselves to it, to learn from it and to yield ourselves to it. And that's what we do here at Trinity After Dark. It's one of the wonderful distinctives about Trinity that I I think means more to me than than, uh, almost anything else. It's it's our single-minded commitment to God's Word, and as it points us towards the, the, the Word incarnate. That's what the Bible does. It points us towards Jesus. That's its, that's its uh, Spirit-given uh, ministry, is to, to draw you and me into a relationship with Christ. And so because we worship Christ, we yield ourselves to His Word, as it was authoritatively taught by the apostles. And that's what we aim to do. Uh, that's what Warren's going to do or aim to do tonight in the Bible study. Uh, looking at another book, he will help us understand uh, the, the sweeping picture of the Scriptures. And that will be his goal. That's the goal of our Sunday school. That's the goal of our youth group. That's the goal of our men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings. That's the goal of all of our Bible studies, our women's group that they're hoping to start in the fall. That is what we aim to do here. We aim to be submitted to God's Word. And I want to say that as people truly devote themselves to that, they are being church. Now there's more to say, but as we are gathered around God's Word, that is what it means to be church. It's what the apostolic church did. So apostolic teaching. If you ever hear us teaching something here at Trinity that is not from the apostles, Let's discuss it. Bring, bring your Bible. Let's talk about it. And if it's not the teaching of the apostles, then we shouldn't be teaching it. Uh, we, we should only teach what the apostles taught us. And so we, we yield ourselves. I think Dominus Jesus acknowledges that, but misunderstands it, in, in my humble opinion. Uh, they uh, quote the Bible at great length. But they have, I think, misunderstood uh, the place of tradition in this discussion. Uh, the, uh, the problem with this document is it, it has the Bible on one hand and these other unwritten traditions that have over time gathered around uh, the teaching of the church and, uh, and it, it has obscured the simple message of the Bible. And it's all on a par. So that what previous 
popes have said and previous synods, all of that accrues around the teaching of the Bible. And it begins to obscure it. And uh, that's a problem. Uh, the, the whole, one of the whole points of the Reformation was to strip that away, not necessarily to throw it out, but to strip it away so that we can see what the Bible says. We can judge these other traditions as, as we see fit and as they fit in under the Bible, but we can never put a man-made tradition alongside the Bible. And that's the point we just disagree with our brother Joseph. Uh, we cannot put these traditions, however valuable they may be, we can never allow them to obscure our understanding of the Word of God. The church is always, we would say, under God's Word. It's never alongside God's Word. It's under God's Word. And to acknowledge that, I believe, is what it means to be in the church. Apostolic teaching. Secondly, the, uh, the early church devoted themselves to the fellowship. So there's a, there is an article there in Greek. It is the fellowship, not just fellowship generally, but to the fellowship, to the unique. The word, Greek word is koinonia, and it's a wonderful, wonderful word to describe the fellowship which we share in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, that fellowship was what they devoted themselves to. It was, a, it was fellowship with the apostles and with all those in fellowship with the apostles, with, with, in communion with the apostles. So it was, it was like a, a spiritual family. And you and I are part of that, that fellowship. It is a fellowship that goes around the world and it is a fellowship that goes across time. We are in fellowship with all of the people of God. And uh, tonight, we're going to do a couple of things. Brian, I'm so glad you made it, brother. I want you to have a chance, if you want to still tonight, to stand up and confess your faith in the Lord Jesus. I thought it might be. I'm glad you made it. And we're also going to gather at the table of Jesus. Now, this little humble table over here doesn't look like the, uh, the altar at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. But it is actually the table of fellowship. It's the, the table around which the people of God will gather. Actually, we're a small enough group tonight that I, I propose we literally gather around the table. Because that's what we're meant to do. Uh, if we're in a room that it's too many people to literally gather around the table, we are spiritually gathering around the table. And in our main church building across the way there, the table's right in the middle. Some people call that an altar. I call it a table. That's the Bible's word for it. The idea of Christ at table with His disciples. It's the prayer book's word for it. Uh, we're going to be at table together tonight. And that, that fellowship, and by the way, we will literally break bread. And that meal, which once upon a time was, was an actual meal that they shared together, that meal is a little expression of our fellowship. Now, it's a very, very special expression, but it is simply an expression of that that koinonia fellowship which we share with one another and by the Holy Spirit with Christ. He's the, uh, he's the host. He is the, uh, he is the giver. He is the one who calls us together and we share in His body and blood. Not, not in transubstantiation, but in terms of our faith in, in the once-for-all sacrifice He made on the cross. It's more than coffee hour. If you look at verses 43 to... Uh, 46a, 
you'll see a description of what real koinonia fellowship is like. And let me tell you, uh, it is, it's a very powerfully attractive picture of people who are committed to each other. It says, everyone was filled with awe, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common, verse 45. They sold their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. That's a picture of koinonia fellowship. It's, it's people who are knit together in a, a powerful love for each other. And it's a love for each other that manifests in radical sharing. It's not something that Washington can legislate. It's not socialism. It's infinitely more wonderful than socialism. It's people who want to give to one another out of the, on the basis of the deepest possible spiritual relationship. We sang a song this morning, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And it's talking about the, the spiritual tie which binds us together. It's, by the way, a tie that I hope you felt with other Christians. It doesn't matter the denomination. That you felt with other men and women, boys and girls, who know and love the Lord Jesus. That bond of fellowship where we care for each other. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me. I've gotten to travel just a little bit. And it is amazing to me when you meet a Christian someone who knows Jesus, they may be a different skin color, they may have a different language, they may may be from a very, very different place. But when you discover this this bond that you have around Christ, it is a powerful thing. A powerful thing. People will do all kinds of remarkable things on account of this tie that binds us together. That is coining your fellowship. Yes, shown, demonstrated in the meal we share, that's why we're said to be in communion. We're going to break bread together. It's a primordial symbol of our, of our being like a family. We're going to break bread together. But infinitely more than that, a spiritual reality that's lived out in our little church. Well, I just have to disagree with this statement. That koinonia fellowship is the church. I mean, it's that bond, that spiritual bond is the church. That's the invisible church. I'm all for the visible church, and and, uh, I've given my life to working in the structures of the visible church. It matters to me, and I know to you all. But we're committed to something more than that. We're committed to a spiritual reality. That's one of the reasons uh, we've been struggling with what to put on our sign out there. You may have noticed the the ongoing uh, dilemma about what to put on our sign. Uh, We've got these two temporary signs, and... Uh, I've got to tell you, this has been going on for years. We've been wrestling with what do we want to put on there. And we finally just came down to Trinity Hillcrest Church. No reference to denomination at the moment. Uh, we're actually debating whether to put Anglican on there or not. But at the moment, it says Trinity Hillcrest Church. And uh, for what it's worth to anybody, that's actually pretty typically Anglican in a church uh, that was founded in a country like England. In England... Uh, you put the name of the church and where it was, and that's, that is the church's name. And uh, you didn't fuss with denominations. Denominations are a particular American obsession. Uh, Christianity has not historically dealt with denominations over most of our history. Uh, it's only been in the last few hundred years that we've been struggling with what flavor of the Catholic Church you're going to be. I'm personally not against denominations. It seems to me God has purpose to use them. Uh, but that is not what we live and die for. I mean, I'm an Episcopalian. I'm committed to the Anglican Church. Some of you are as well. But 
I am not committed to the Anglican Church. I'm committed to the Church of Jesus Christ. And that's what Trinity is. And we've sought to peel away the man-made traditions and let the Gospel stand on its own. And uh, that's what it means to be in, in genuine koinonia fellowship. It's to focus on those things which we share with all believers everywhere at all times. So that's, uh, that's one of the marks of this authentic church fellowship. The third one, the third uh, expression the linked together with the word and, is prayer. If you look down in 46b, you'll see that the, um, and 47, I guess it is, yeah. In 47, uh, the church is described as praising God. They, they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's according to your fellowship. And they were praising God and enjoying the, the favor of all the people. Praising God. Prayer. Praising the Lord. Uh, we are meant to be a place of prayer. We are meant to be a, a praying people. And when people pray in the Holy Spirit, when people praise God, then they're being church. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. It's the fellowship of those who pray to the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Down in chapter 3, verse 1, there's an interesting reference. It says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. They were actually, what were they hanging around the temple doing back in verse... uh, 45 and 46, what were they doing? They were praying. They were going to the temple in order to pray. That's what they did at the, at the temple. Now, there were other things that were done at the, at the temple. Sacrifices were being offered, presumably, but they were going there in order to pray. They were together, breaking bread and praying together. And that's one of the things I hope will, that will grow more and more among us here at Trinity, is this devotion to prayer. By the way, the, the prayer in the temple was um, a liturgical prayer. Jewish prayer is deeply liturgical. Uh, to this day, you know, Jewish prayers are liturgical prayers, by and large. And if you go to a Jewish synagogue service, it's going to be a prayer service with the Word. And uh, that's, what the, that's what the apostles were doing. They were, they were, they were praying together, and, and as they yielded themselves to the Word, they were responding in praise. And that's, that's what the church does. And that's what we do here at Trinity. That's what we're going to do here tonight. Uh, after I'm, I'm finished uh, talking, we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer. We're going to pray for one another. It's, it's one of our expressions according to your fellowship. Whoever leads us in the prayer tonight is going to pray for sometimes for our individual, personal, private needs that we wouldn't share with anybody else. I mean, the more we get to know and love each other, the more we trust each other, the more willing we are to make ourselves vulnerable to one another and to, to bring those things out and to pray about them. Uh, that's according to your fellowship, in prayer. That's what you and I will do. And even if we aren't uh, free at times to, to, to bring all of our dirty laundry out, we still bear those burdens quietly for one another. I mean, I've, prayed in, I've shared individual prayer requests with in, individuals in this congregation, and others have done the same for me. And that's what we'll do for one another. We'll pray to our God for one another. Uh, who's praying tonight? Well, would you please pray for our brother Joseph, for, uh, for Benedict the Sixteenth? I mean, he has enormous weight on his shoulders. And uh, there's a great deal in this document that should encourage us and inspire us. Uh, let's pray for him.
Uh, let's pray for our own bishop, James. Uh, he, uh, he needs our prayers as well. There's a great deal on his shoulders. Uh, let's pray for our church, for the Episcopal Church, and, and very specifically for our fellowship. You know, in the, in the Bible, uh, the word church is used primarily to describe this. Now, secondarily, it's used to describe the larger fellowship of which we are a part. I say secondarily in the sense that the second most common usage of the word. Uh, we are part of something much bigger than just this. But this is where we meet that. <laughs> this is church as we experience it. This is that community of fellowship of people who know and love the Lord Jesus. And uh, so we'll pray for one another and for, uh, for our very special needs here in our local congregation. Well, let's pray for our ministry here that God would help us to proclaim the gospel uh, in our day. And if you take those three things together, you have an answer to the question, what is a church? What do we do here at Trinity? Well, the church is those who are being saved. It's, it's verse 47b. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The church is the fellowship of those who are being saved. That's what it means to be in the church. It's the same thing we see back in uh, chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's the same thing we see back in chapter 2, verse 18. Speaking from uh, the Old Testament prophet Joel, uh, where the prophet foresaw the day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on both men and women, on all of his, God's servants uh, who will prophesy. Uh, we see some reference that sounds familiar from the book of Revelation. And then down in verse 21, we have this wonderful summary of who it is that is in the church. The church is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. They are the ones who will be saved. The church, the ecclesia, is those who are called out to be a part of that fellowship. And yes, the structures matter, but they aren't what define us. What defines us is that we are those whom God has called to Himself to save us. And so it's, it's worth noting the initiative in the church is His. It's not some ecumenical offices. It's not the curia in Rome. It's not the Pope. It's not uh, the House of Bishops or the House of Deputies. It's, it's not a vestry. It's not a, a clergyman. The initiative is God's, the Lord's. He's the one who calls the church into existence. And no man-made structure however well-intended, however old, can stand over that. He will save whom He will save. And as He saves them, then we are in fellowship with them. Maybe in perfect fellowship. We may not see eye to eye on every single thing. Paul acknowledges that, even with Peter. But we are those who are being knit together. Those who are being saved. Now, I just want to say one word about apostolic succession uh, back in uh, the statement, Dominus Jesus, there's a great deal made of the apostolic succession. Does everybody know what that is? Uh, some of us may not be crystal clear on what it is. The apostolic succession is, well, it's twofold. In one sense, it's the connection between bishops and uh, clergy. Because our bishop was ordained by a bishop who had been ordained by a bishop, who had been ordained by a bishop, all the way back, they say, to Peter. And uh, one bishop laying hand on another bishop all the way through the thousands of years to today. 
and that uh, that apostolic succession has to do with described as tactile, hand to head, hand to head, all the way through the centuries. And uh, I was ordained by a bishop in that succession. I think it's it's kind of a neat thing. That matters to me that we have that. Uh, but it doesn't define the church. You see, as we read here in Acts 2.42, what defines the church is not apostolic succession in that sense, but apostolic teaching. Now, I can sadly point to a lot of bishops, both in the past and very much today, who had hands to head, but were not teaching apostolic truth can point to examples in our own church where that's true. I can point to Roman Catholic bishops where that's not true. So it seems clear here that what's really important is not that apostolic succession in the sense of hand-to-head bishop-to-bishop, but apostolic teaching as in heart-to-heart and and head-to-head as we together submit ourselves to the teaching of of the apostles. There's a second sense. I didn't get into this this morning. But uh, the apostolic succession doctrine also holds that the bishops today are the heirs of the apostles. And so that our bishop, Jim Stanton, according to one way of thinking, is an apostle with the same authority that Peter had or that Paul had. Well, I don't think you can make that case. As I said earlier, the apostles were given a special and very unique responsibility. A once-for-all responsibility. The reason that our fellowship matters is not because we're in fellowship with Jim Stanton, whom I love very much, but because we are in fellowship with the apostles. We teach what they taught. That is the succession that matters to us. And that's the succession to which you and I give ourselves. Fellowship with the apostles. And then one word finally about the Lord's Supper, because uh, The other deficiency in our church, as this document sees it, is our doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Um, The Roman Catholic Church teaches uh, two things about the Lord's Supper. It has to be done by a validly ordained person. And my ordination is not valid in in the opinion of the Roman Catholic Church. And therefore, what we're going to do tonight is invalid. So you are warned. Uh, if that matters to you, my uh, ordination is invalid in the opinion of the Roman Catholic Church. And secondly, our doctrine of the Lord's Supper is invalid. Because, and there was a huge argument about this in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century about what happens at the Lord's Supper. And Anglican theologians and Roman Catholic theologians were swapping uh, articles and documents back and forth because the Roman Catholic Church said that in order to have a valid Eucharist, you have to have a sacrifice. And our theologians responded, well, there is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. They said, no, it's got to be a sacrifice of blood. Uh, The only sacrifice uh, that uh, is valid is one of blood. And so the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine for the Roman Catholic must be a bloody sacrifice. Not one you can see with your eyes, but one that is real. A real sacrifice of Christ. I've got to tell you, if we taught that, I wouldn't be here. Because... uh, That is not what the Bible teaches us about the Lord's Supper, in my opinion. What the Bible teaches us about the Lord's Supper is focused on a different kind of spiritual sacrifice, which we do together, drawn carefully from the Bible. And what we're going to do tonight, while it has certain similarities to the Roman Catholic rite, is not the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. We are going to be breaking bread together in Christian fellowship. 
gathered around this simple meal because of the fellowship we share in Christ. And the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice, was 2,000 years ago on the cross. Unrepeatable. We wouldn't repeat it if we could, because there's no need to. His sacrifice in Hebrews accomplished it all. So we don't ever need to go to an altar. We gather at a table. Yes, the table reminds us of the altar of the cross, but it's at this table where the fellowship of those who know and love Jesus gather to break bread together. And that's literally what we're going to do. We're going to break bread and share wine. And as we do that, we're going to call to our minds the sacrifice of Jesus. And and there will be a spiritual transaction as we do that. Mysterious? I'm certainly not going to try to explain it. That's been one of the excellent brilliances of the Anglican churches. We've tried not to tack that down too tidily. I don't feel any need to tack that down. But it will be a spiritual experience of the application of that once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. So if that's a deficient view, so be it. Uh, but it seems in, in, uh, in the Anglican church at least and in, among Protestants generally that that is what the Bible teaches us. You, you're free to decide for yourself. So what is a church? A church is a, the fellowship of those who know and love Jesus. It's not about a ritual or a rite. It's not about, about um, signing on some church's dotted line. It's about knowing Jesus, loving Him, being in fellowship with His apostles. Uh, having uh, prayer together, lifting our voices to the King of the universe. That is what the church is. And brothers and sisters, Dominus Noster Quoque. He is our Lord too. And we worship Him. And we, we love those who know and love Jesus, even if we disagree on some things. We love them. We care for them. We don't hate them. We wish them well. And we want to be in dialogue too about what we honestly believe. Right? So let's, let's, uh, let's take just a moment to pray about this. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the, the teaching of the apostles. We thank you, Father, for Peter's sermon on that first Pentecost, for this glimpse into what you have done and were doing and are doing to this day. Uh, gracious God, we pray that that apostolic teaching would be very much alive here among us that it would shape the preaching and the teaching, that it would shape all of our engagement with Your Word, that we would yield ourselves consciously and deliberately to the teaching of of those You specially entrusted with this message. And Father, we pray that You would help us to grow in authentic Christian fellowship, that You would give us radical generosity towards one another. Uh, Father, I know tonight there are needs There are needs in this very room. And I I pray You'd give us a burden for one another's needs. And if I'm hungry, it matters to my brothers and sisters. And if they are hungry, it matters to me. Please, Father, help us to love each other and care for one another in that way. And Father, we we pray You'd help us to grow as a people of prayer. Father, we talk about prayer. We do it liturgically. Uh, Please send Your Spirit to give us a heart to pray. Father, I pray for our parish prayer meeting. We have a prayer meeting coming up in just a few days. And Father, the way it's been going lately is that we call a prayer meeting and just a couple of people show up. Uh, Father, I know sometimes people just can't make it and they may be praying wherever they are. And it doesn't matter where we are. But what an encouragement is, Lord, 
when we are able to gather together and lift our voices. And I, I pray that Trinity would more and more be characterized by that sense of sharing our prayer life. Uh, please help us, like the apostles, to get together in order to fellowship and to pray. And Father, thank you that you are drawing men and women to yourself even today. Thank you that through uh, Harvest Unlimited, you've allowed us to reach out to, to some in our community who do not know you. May they grow in your Son, Father. Send your Spirit to knit their hearts to ours. Please help us, Father, to reach out to them as you have reached out to us. And Father, we pray all these things tonight confidently, not in ourselves, but in the name of our Lord, who has called us to himself, Jesus Christ. Amen.